Welcome to Microbe Mail. I'm your host, Vindana Chibabai. Microbe Mail is a podcast for clinicians, but also for students navigating their way through volumes of information. So today we're doing something a little different from our usual content, and we're chatting to an author of a book entitled Bacterial Genetics and Genomics by Laurie Snyder. Laurie is a professor of microbiology and genomics at Kingston University in London. Laurie, thanks so much for joining me today and welcome to Microbeal. Well, thank you. Um, that was a great introduction. Thank you for having me on today. My pleasure. So audience, remember to sign up for updates on the Microbeal website. You can follow Microbeal on social media. And most importantly, please try and help spread the word. Microbeal is available all over the world on any podcast platform. So please remember to listen, like, comment, share and tag, and repeat. And remember that all the links we talk about during the episode are always available in the show notes. So Laurie, let's get into it by talking a little bit about who Laurie Snyders is. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic background and where you're based? Sure. Um, I guess it really, it all started with my parents. Um, They met when they were working at Yale. Um, so in the U.S., in Connecticut, Yale, that everyone's probably heard of. Yeah. Um, so as a teenager, I knew I didn't want to go there because it oh, was really? just right there. It was right <laughs> where my parents had been. It was where my dad continued to work. Um, so I didn't want to be just that close. I didn't want to go to Yale. Um, and I was adventurous. I had that adventurous spirit. Um, it's something that my parents instilled in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I hated the cold. So Connecticut in the Northeast of the U.S. was just completely out. I did go visit somewhere in Vermont and they were talking about how sometimes their students skied to get to classes. And I just thought, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom took me on a, a, a road trip and a tour of universities one summer. And I fell in love with the College of William and Mary in Virginia. Yes. And it's there that I did my bachelor's and determined that I was going to be a veterinarian. Okay. Um, but I also became passionate about genetics while I was there and doing my studies. Um, so then I decided, actually, I, what I want to do is, is do research and, and do genetics. So I stayed on to do my master's and I discovered then the wonders of microbiology. Um, thanks to Professor Carl Vermeulen, um, who we call Dr. V. And um, he got everyone in his class doing an original piece of research, which was phenomenal. So we were all in the lab um, running around doing uh, all sorts of wonderful experiments that were that we didn't know the outcome, unlike in a practical class where everybody knows and everybody's done the same thing year in and year out. It was original research. We didn't know what we're going to get in the end. And we presented this research actually at a conference in Las Vegas. Wow. And it was the American Society for Microbiology Conference. And for anyone out there who's been to an ASM conference, they're just huge. They are. They are. I've seen them. I haven't been to one, but I've seen pictures and, and yeah. it's massive. There's probably plenty of YouTube videos about how just huge they are. And it's <laughs> awe-inspiring. And from there, I joined Bill Schaefer's lab at Emory University to do my PhD. And I was fortunate to do some work there at the CDC while I was there and learn about how things were done at the, at the CDC and in government microbiology. 
while I was with Bill, then the first genome sequences came out. So I was in microbial genomics and genome sequences were first being generated. And wow. he got access to the first genome sequences for the organism we were working on. And that's incredible. Yeah. So microbial genomics has just been my passion ever since. Throughout my time at the University of Oxford as a postdoc and then the University of Birmingham as a research fellow, and now as a professor at Kingston University. Wow. So you started your journey wanting to be a veterinarian, but you've become a scientist (laughs) of a different kind of animal, shall we say. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, you know, my message kind of for all of my students is to really have an open mind when you go and you start learning because you'll discover all of these wonderful things that are out there. And when you start diving in and doing research, your hypothesis might need to change. That could even be your hypothesis on what you see for your future. Absolutely. And I see that academics is in your blood as well. So you've been, (laughs) and you've, you've, you've been kind of broadly based at several different universities. So that's quite incredible that you've had that sort of experience as well. Yeah, it's been wonderful. So so Laurie, let's talk about then what prompted you to write this book. I was actually asked to write this book by the publisher. Um, CRC Press, um, part of Taylor and Francis Publishing, approached me and asked for a meeting to discuss uh, the potential of developing a book in the area. Mm-hmm. It seems one of their departments um, saw a need in the field. Um, and the editor then, Liz Owen, did some searching and investigating into researchers who had suitable skills to put together a book. Um, I think initially, they approached me to find out what my feelings about a book and what I thought would go into a book, um, really hoping that I would write the book. And, and so, um, of course, being right, approached to write the book um, and saying yes are two different things. Yes. Um, it's a huge undertaking. Massive. And I really had to think about it. But I remember um, during my PhD being complimented by Bill Schaefer and my thesis writing and him saying I had the ability to write a book. Um, so I went for it. That's quite incredible and and quite an honor, I think, to be actually asked to write a book rather than sending in a proposal and and requesting to write one. So, yeah, that's quite amazing. And I hear you taking, saying yes and actually writing the book are are two different stories. So (laughs) I'm sure it's quite quite an honor for you to see it on the other end and see the final product as well. Oh, I was so excited to see the final product. It was actually, it was delivered during the pandemic lockdown. (laughs) Oh, wow. What better gift than that? (laughs) So let's talk about who this book's actually written for. Who's the audience, Laurie? Um, Yeah, I wrote the book for for me when I was starting, if I were starting now, in Mm -hmm. a sense, um, thinking about the things that I wish I knew if I were a new student. And so also I wrote it for, for my students because I pay attention to the things that they struggle to get, what they, they struggle to, to understand where the background bits that they haven't put together. So when we get to the more advanced bits, they're just not putting it all together. And for students all over the globe and those whose learning styles may be different Mm. So I was always trying to explain things in a few different ways in the text and in the figures and in the figure legends to make things clear. And I think it's also for researchers so that they can look things up. Mm. Like my research students, 
who are they're trying to do overlapping PCR at the moment. Um, so mm -hmm. directing them to where that is in the book and then going, oh, okay, so I see from the, the, the picture and I read from the text and now I'm getting it and I'm watching then also a few YouTube videos and those other things and bringing it, the, all of these things together as well as me telling them. <laughs> Yeah. And then their project wanders into biofilms and there's that bit in the book for them to look at as well. Right. And I think it's, it's also for PIs and the supervisors and professors and lecturers who maybe don't even realize it's for them. Fields move and they move Absolutely. on. And for us to, to keep apprised of what's happening and also for all of this to be in one place as an easy reference for our students to help us as a tool to help them. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're so right about things moving on and, you know, you kind of get so focused in one little area of your field. Um, and yes. it's nice to just have a reference that you kind of have as a go-to. I know exactly where to find it. Um, yeah. You know, a bit of spending 30 minutes or 45 minutes searching internet, looking yeah. for it. <clears throat> Okay, great. And I think it's also quite nice that you're a lecturer, a supervisor. So you're seeing it from, from both perspectives. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so Laurie, looking at the book, I really, really enjoyed the tone with which you've written the book. It feels so easy to read rather than feeling like I was reading something and trying to decipher a complex code, which is often what happens when one's <laughs> reading a textbook. I felt like I was having a professional conversation with somebody who was talking me through it, which was, I must say, really, really refreshing um, and quite an enjoying read. Oh, thank you so much. Um, that's, that's really awesome to hear. And I, I really have appreciated that when people have fed that back to me, because that's entirely what I was going for and entirely what I had discussed with my editor that I felt was needed. I don't think there's much point in there being a textbook which is supposed to be teaching you something if mm. that language that it uses is inaccessible. Absolutely. So it needed to be something that when you sit down to read it at you know 10 o'clock, 11.30, past midnight as a student, <laughs> that it, it, you're going to be able to easily take it in and it's not gonna, just going to send you to sleep. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it needs to be that anyone can pick it up and, and read it that, you know, of, of any abilities and, and any learning files yeah you definitely don't want your student reading the book at midnight wanting to throw it out the window so definitely no. <laughs> I think I had a few of those <laughs> so Laurie why do you think this book would actually benefit your readers right from the start there are new things to learn um, in chapter one through to chapter 21, there are new concepts and new ideas for everyone. Even in the chapters that you would think are just revision for you, if you think you already know everything there is to know about DNA, for example, um, the, the chapters have gotten new things in them and they build upon one another. And then there are three chapters in there that apply the theory that's been presented in the book in the preceding chapters. So ah. you build up learning theory throughout and throughout and throughout. And then there are three chapters that are just hands-on. They're hands-on bioinformatics on how to use bioinformatics tools on genes, on another ah. one on genomes, and then a third one that 
safely, please use them in the lab um, for, <laughs> for lab-based skills. Um, so that is, is chapter 18. There's a note in there all about please do it safely and in the lab. <laughs> Although there is one little note that I've put in on how to extract DNA in your own kitchen. Oh, really? Yeah. That would be fun. That's definitely yeah. exciting. So nice that there's this practical um, component to it as well and not just, yeah. a, not just a theory textbook. Okay, I'm going to see if I can extract some DNA in my kitchen. <laughs> um, I think we've already covered some of what I'm about to ask you, but could you possibly elaborate on what makes this book different from other books on bacterial genetics and genomics? Well, as you said, I think we've touched on some of it. The writing is easy to read. The concepts that are presented in the writing include new information in each chapter that build as we go. The chapters on the applications um, that apply those from the theories. And unlike any of the other books that I've seen, this is written to be accessible by anyone. It also gets into advanced topics. The early chapters don't assume prior knowledge, yet mm. they're engaging, I hope, in a way that means that readers who feel they already know all about DNA or RNA or still have a read through those chapters. They don't just skip them. Mm. I mentioned there are, um, well, there are um, peer reviewers for each of the chapters before the final edit. So they're sent out to peer reviewers, much like our peer reviewed journal publications are. Right. And we receive feedback from peer reviewers before we do any of the final edits, before okay. we um, send that out. But also I insisted on each of these chapters being sent to student reviewers. So the oh, peer that's review, true. that's just standard, I think, from the, from the publisher. Mm. But having students actually review it, that's something that, that I added in. Um, I wanted a student's perspective for them to tell me that what was and wasn't clear, where I'd used jargon or I'd mm. written things that were just too advanced in, in kind of lab understanding or concept understanding. And right. they needed something or I'd left something out that needed to be put back in. So they're input was really, really valuable. I'm sure, yeah. Um, one of those students even said to me that um, the topic in one of the chapters um, was one that they had never understood before until reading my words. Um, so that's the difference. That's um, really the difference that I'm hoping to convey in this book. And I feel that I have done because I've had this kind of student feedback as well as the peer feedback. Yeah, I can imagine. I've also put some reference material on the inside front and back covers of the book, um, something else. I had to get special permission to do this. Um, it includes common things I see my students struggle with, such mm -hmm. as conversion in metric units. Um, so going from um, mills to microliters, things like that. Um, calculations for constant. Always stand by that. <laughs> it's just right there. You just flick open the inside cover and it's just there. And that's um, exactly where you want it, not have to dig for it. <laughs> Um, calculations for concentrations in CFU per mil, um, how to make serial dilutions. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So all of that is just right there in the inside covers where 
I would want to have something just just to hand for for my book. Mm. Um, and if you're you're listening and thinking I have your book and it doesn't have that, that's my apologies. There were a few print runs that didn't get the instruction to put that on oh, there. Yeah. You can download that missing content from the publisher website. Um, and the, the same link is for my book in the show notes. There's a link there for useful aids that are on the, the publisher website, such as flashcards for all the glossary terms, which is something mm-hmm. the editor and I came up with, clues mm-hmm. for the study questions, and that missing material as well. Oh, that sounds great. So definitely a lot of study-related material, but also some practical. Um, so it seems very much like an all-in-one book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's available as an ebook as well, which some students find useful because you can then do a find to be able to find terms Absolutely. For, yeah. as well as yeah. using an index. Yeah, definitely. So uh, there's a group of listeners on this show that are in the medical field who might, may feel that what you've said in about the book is more suited to kind of science students. Mm. So would you say that there's sections of the book that you think would be particularly useful to students in the medical field specifically? Absolutely. I actually taught medical students while I was at the University of Oxford, and my students were always curious about real life examples, case studies and epidemiology of infectious diseases. Um, So these sorts of stories I peppered throughout the book. I mm-hmm. think that they're of, of interest and relevant to anybody who's studying microbiology. We want to know why this matters. You know, why are we mm. studying this? Why does it matter? How are these tiny organisms affecting us and the world around us? Um, so those stories are, are really throughout the book, but there's a really good concentration of information in chapter 20, which is just about infectious diseases. Oh, okay, good. That's helpful to know that it's kind of centered in one one particular area. And then on a similar note, would you say that there's particular sections of the book that you think are particularly useful for clinicians? So maybe doctors who are in practice? Yes. So I think in addition to chapter 20, I think the, the useful for clinicians would be to read through part five, which is about bacterial response, adaptation, and evolution. Those are chapters 13 to 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be easy for any of us, particularly when faced with an infection, to just think of this as one static thing. That is the same thing as the previous thing with the same name that you fought before. <laughs> But it's not, these these chapters bring to life these living dynamic organisms and underpin what's happening in infectious disease that are so resistant to our eradication. And of course, I'd recommend to anyone that they read the chapters before as well, but chapters 13, 14 and 15, I think would be particularly good for those who are um, clinicians in practice to just be thinking about the dynamic nature of the organisms that they're fighting. Okay, that's great. That's a great recommendation. Laurie, I I so love the descriptive subtitles that you've given each of the chapters. Um, And often I found as a student myself that you'd find the chapter name as confusing as the content, Um, (laughs) (laughs) almost as though you needed to have a background understanding of the content to use this book. And you've already alluded to this, but yeah, it was just really great to see these. Uh, I was actually taken aback when I first looked at it and I was like, is is that content or is that a subtitle? (laughs) (laughs) 
that's great. Thank you. Yeah, one of the concepts of this book, um, when it first came to me from the publisher, the original idea of the chapters and the topics was just kind of a skeleton of what they thought they wanted to see. And all of the chapters, they had these big, long, complex names. And mm. I didn't see the point. Mm. Um, chapter one is about DNA. So chapter one, DNA, chapter two, genes, chapter three, genomes, easy. Mm. When I was visiting my editor, I saw um, also that one of their books in, in an entirely other field, and they had colors on the ends of the pages um, so that when oh. the book is closed, you could see those colors right. throughout the book. And it then made it easy to navigate through the parts of the book. So you could see the, where chapter one, two, and three are because they're a particular color even when the book is closed. Mm. So I see right there that I want that. I want that on my book and I'm so <laughs> glad they did it. Every page has a colored bar at the top with the chapter number and its name. So you know where you are when mm. you're reading and you can flick to where you want to be and find the different sections. So when I say to the, the clin clinical practice folks should read 13, 14, 15. They'll be able to find that based on the color of that and know they're in the right area based on the bar at the top of the page when they open the book. Oh, that's a fantastic idea. And I think that just the look and the feel of a book also helps you kind of want to go in and read it. So yeah, yeah. Kind of I mean, that's one of the things that having come out when the pandemic did, the book hasn't been out and in, in conferences and around for people to touch it and feel it and hold it and look yeah. through it and go, oh, this is I great. Like <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, please, please do find a copy, look through the copy, look at it online. It, yeah. Awesome. So Laurie, would you like to read us an excerpt that you particularly enjoy from the book for the listeners? Sure, um, I'd love to. Yeah, and maybe you can tell us why you think this particular section is important. Um, sure. Um, this is a section from Chapter 20, Infectious Diseases. Um, and this is in a section with a subtitle, Genome Sequencing Can Improve Infection Control for Surgical Site Infections. Um, and I think this is particularly important because it highlights not only where we have been and where we are still in mm -hmm the vast majority of the world, but also where we are in, in one particular hospital and how that is spreading out and the, the, where the future is taking us in genomics mm -hmm. and the power of the tools of genomics for combating, combating infectious disease. Okay, sounds great. So this is page 338, chapter 20, infectious disease. Genome sequencing can improve infection control for surgical site infections. Patients who undergo surgery have a 0.6 to 9.6% chance of surgical site infection. They are also at risk of development of nosocomial infections. As mentioned, outbreak detection is largely the same as it has been for about 100 years. Surveillance in the hospital looking for infections involves assessing a daily list of patients who test positive for infectious organisms. Catching overlaps in cases of patients with the same infection can be difficult. This can lead to an epidemiological investigation. However, traditional typing takes weeks, involves sending samples away to a reference laboratory and may not be sufficiently discriminatory. Instead, bacterial sequencing within the hospital and ep epidemiological analysis can be used to more quickly and with greater resolution identify outbreaks. For example, 
the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine has developed sequence first outbreak detection. When a patient is identified with an infectious organism, it can be sequenced within a day. The sequence data and patient data together make a simple report that is available the morning of the following day. The report identifying the organism includes transmission likelihood information for the infectious disease and coupled with the data from the rest of the hospital sequence information, gives early warning information for outbreaks. This can be expanded to provide data on outbreaks across hospitals, across nations, and across the globe. Wow, that's there incredible. we are. Yeah, yeah. And I remember. As I said, it sounds like you're. It doesn't sound like you're reading from a textbook. It sounds like <laughs> you're having a conversation. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I remember really hearing fun. that presented at a conference. Um, and so some of my research for the book was from attending conferences, reading from the literature um, and putting, piecing all of this together. Yeah. And that just brings together what you had said about it being useful for clinicians and people in the medical field, that it, this isn't just bacterial genomics in a silo. It's really mm. bringing the clinical relevance to it um, and, and kind of, you know, for low and middle income settings, which don't necessarily have access to all of the genomics available in other parts of the world, to have some idea of what we can introduce in our setting, what is available, and what can we try and, you know, modify to our settings. Absolutely, yeah. So on that note about the low and middle income settings, can you tell us if there's any specific content that's applicable to low and middle in income countries and settings? Well, I would hope that folks will see that I've tried to include a diversity of bacteria, including a range of infectious diseases. Of course, my research for writing the book is based on the research that's been done by others. So I will admit there may be some bias in where more genome studies have been done. However, perhaps my favorite mystery of epidemiology solved by genomics is the cholera outbreak in Haiti. And you'll see mm -hmm. that referenced in there as well as other stories from parts of the world, not just the UK um, and the USA. Uh, but also um, in in low middle income countries. Okay, great. Looking forward to reading that. There's section. some great stories about um, folks taking the the Oxford nanopore sequencers, which are very tiny, taking them in carry on suitcases um, off to Ebola outbreaks, which are of course they're viral infections. But that just shows that there is the capacity to set up genome sequencing with very little infrastructure and in very small uh, and, and accessible and movable ways where it's yeah. needed. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to reading those sections. Um, I also noticed that you included some summaries at the end, ends of the chapters. These seem quite useful. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, the summaries. So my editor and I feel these are very important and she was very strict with me to make sure they were very clear <laughs> and short um, and everything is uh, the most important in the chapter. So these key points are there as aids for studying. They're there as a quick reference and to give me yet another opportunity to explain an important point in a different way. Um, so they followed they're followed then by myself study materials, the glossary terms for each chapter, um, which are mm -hmm. in bold throughout the chapter, and then 
are in flashcards on the website. So you can self-study them on the website. Yes. There's 12 short answer questions. Um, and then there's clues for where to find the answers to those on the website, but not the answers. And I was very <laughs> concrete about that. I wasn't going to give the answers on the website for students to just find and copy. But That's maybe a clue, you. <laughs> <laughs> a clue on where to find them in the book for anyone who is struggling. And then there's some deeper discussion topics to explore. And these last ones are designed to enable the book to extend beyond the time frame it was written. Because mm -hmm. once it goes to press, that's it. <laughs> but if you've got these questions that then encourage students to go out and look at the current literature and extend beyond what's in the book, research move on, moves on, the field moves on, right. and that gets explored here. And also in a blog that's referenced in the uh, online support materials with the publisher. Oh, that's great. So you've got longevity to this book far yeah. beyond the publication date, which is excellent. And um, the illustrations in the book are beautiful and eye-catching. Um, it was so nice not to see black and white images <laughs> Thank you. in the book. So that also just added to kind of the, um, the appeal for it. Oh, I'm so glad you like them. The, the final products um, are due to the excellent efforts of the illustrator Patrick Lane. They, all of them started out as pencil sketches that I made as I was writing the book. So they were my, my, my scribbles, my pencil sketches, and they were figures and ideas that I had. And then Patrick made them come to life with color and with depth. And I was so excited when the first ones <laughs> arrived in my inbox and I couldn't believe how great they looked. So I'm just so pleased with how they came out. Yeah, they yeah. really are incredible. And I see also the back of the book, you mentioned the glossary of terms and the, and the glossary of bacterial species. So that, I think that was a really great addition, especially for somebody who's not hearing the names of these pathogens on a daily basis. Well, not all of them are pathogens, but all of these bacterial um, species on a daily basis. So a very nice, quick guide to the organism, um, a little summary of it, and the gram staining pattern I thought was a really nice touch. Yeah. So I asked special permission for my my second editor, Jason Waring, uh, sorry, Jordan Waring, to, to add that in. I can remember back when I started my PhD, my classmates and I, we were all so lost yeah. on the types of bacteria that people kept talking about. Um, and, and none of us had a, a lot of experience in microbiology. I had my project with Dr. V that mm -hmm. had been on E. coli. Okay. <laughs> and in the text that um, I I present all these weird and wonderful non-E. coli bacterial species because I didn't want to, to have another book that just focused a lot on E. coli. I wanted to make yeah. sure it branched out and talked about lots of different species, but I realized I needed something more than just the, the little line in the textbook where I, I do say kind of what this, this bacteria is when I talk about it, but I need mm -hmm. something more. I needed this bacterial species glossary. So I've got that and then in the back of the book. Okay. And then I've also got the permission to add in that, the reference materials at the front and the back. So all these little extra touches that um, I added in um, and, and yeah. surprised my editors with all these things <laughs> I wanted to add in. <laughs> no, I think it's really, really great. So Laurie, that brings us to our spotlight feature for the episode. Shall we play a micro game? Yeah, let's play a microbe game. Okay, so this is what I've done. I've taken a couple of definitions from the glossary of your book. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to set a timer. So we're going to kind of play 30 seconds. 
And I'm going to give you the description and you're going to tell me the word that the definition comes from. What do you say? Okay. <laughs> Ready to go? Let's see how many out of five you can get. I've chosen easy ones, Laurie. Don't, don't stress. <laughs> okay, you ready? Yep. Let's go. So this is a protein that has a lipid component added to it. Lipoprotein. Yeah. Second one is a technology for the analysis of samples based on the mass of molecules within the sample. Maspec. Yes. Third okay. one, the strand of DNA complementary to that encoding a protein. The strand of DNA complementary to that encoding a protein. A negative strand. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I've got two more. We've passed the 30 seconds, but let's just keep going. A single base change in a DNA sequence. Uh, point mutation. Yes. And last one in genetics, the process whereby DNA is copied into RNA. Transcription. Yay. <laughs> well done. Oh, oh, there's so much pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so we doubled on time. We did a minute instead of 30 seconds, but you scored four out what? of five, which is one amazing. One of those really threw me. <laughs> I don't think it works in reverse. <laughs> it's, it's pressure. It's the pressure. <laughs> I don't think that, that that definition works in reverse or something. I don't know. <laughs> One to change for the next edition for the book. <laughs> so Laurie, I don't know if you know, but usually if people have done well in the microbe games, I name a microbe after them. So seeing oh. as you did so excellently well, I hereby bestow upon you the very prestigious title of Snyderella. L'Orealis. Ooh, I like the name. Like it. <laughs> so cool. Next yeah. edition of the book is going to be, yeah, it's not going to be Laurie Slider anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless you discover one of your own bacteria, then you've got the name sorted there you out. Go. Of there you go. <laughs> I could sneak it into the next edition as a good yeah. idea. <laughs> Put it in the glossary. <laughs> good idea. Excellent. <laughs> I'm not sure. Do you want to be pathogenic or do you want to be kind of a milder sort of bacteria? Maybe opportunistic. Sounds good. Yeah. 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 I think that's a good one. <laughs> so Laurie, thanks so much for joining me and talking about this fantastic book. I wish you everything of the best with the book going forward. Do you have any final words to our listeners? Um, keep learning, keep discovering. Uh, yeah. Keep doing the things that you love. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. And listeners, we'd love any feedback to Laurie or myself and the links to access the copy of the book is available, as I said, in the show notes. Until next time, that's it from me, Vin, your micro messenger. See you again soon with more. They just met.